This podcast is sponsored by Australian Christian College, a network of schools committed to student wellbeing, character development and academic improvement. Welcome to the Inspiration Project, where well-known Christians share their stories to inspire young people in their faith and life. Here's your host, Brendan Core. Well, David Robertson, it's fantastic to get some time to to talk with you and to learn a little bit about what your life has been and where you've what's preceded your ministry that you've you've uh, you've come to Australia. And it's wonderful to have you as part of uh, Australian Christian College venture. It's um, it's great to be here. Actually, fantastic. Uh, you've got a bit of an interesting background. Uh, you came to prominence firstly with the writing of of what became a a very popular book. The Dawkins Letters. You want to tell me a bit about how that eventuated, what opportunity or what provoked you to engage sure. in that, that uh, endeavour? I became a Christian uh, at school when I was about 16. And I think one of the first things I ever spoke at as a Christian was in a debating society. Right. And I remember um, being asked to speak, and I wasn't known as a Christian at all, in fact, almost the opposite, being asked to speak on behalf of evangelical Christians. And I did. And afterwards the head of the English department came up to me and said, David, that was absolutely brilliant. Mm. That you said you almost had me convinced you really were a Christian. <laughs> he thought I was, uh, it was a performance. And I, I looked at him, I said, Mr. Patterson, sir, I am, and no one will ever say that again to me. Mm. And I decided just to live, live out, if you like, so come out as a Christian. This was still early in your Christian faith? Oh yeah, I was just, I was, background? Uh, my, my parents, I came from a Christian home, but I rejected it all. Stopped going to church when I was about 12, 13. Um, but annoyingly for me, I was converted. Um, but it was a wonderful thing. And uh, the reason I say that in terms of the book was because I, I was used to debating and dialoguing with people. Mm -hmm. So I went through university. I went through theological college. I became a minister for six years up in the Highland Village. And then I went down to the city of Dundee in Scotland uh, and... Um, very small church that could only grow through outreach. Mm. How big and is the town of Dundee? 150,000. But our, our catchment area was about a quarter of a million. Um, and we had seven people in the church, so, I mean, it was tiny. And I decided deliberately not to dumb down, not to be academic, but not to dumb down, and also to engage with the culture around and uh, seek to communicate the gospel through various means. And I was in uh, a bookstore one day and Richard Dawkins' book, The God Delusion, was there. And I knew Richard Dawkins. I knew he was a very strong atheist. I knew he was actually a good writer on science issues. And so I dreaded getting that book, but I did take it and I did read it. And I couldn't believe how dumb it was. It was mm -hmm. really bad. Uh, it wasn't just me that said that. Uh, Prospect Magazine, who regarded him as the world's number one intellectual, mm -hmm. thought it was a dreadful book. And it was a dreadful book. So I... Um, didn't really know what to do with that. So I sat down and wrote an open letter to him, which got published on the church website. And suddenly I started getting lots and lots and lots of um, emails from atheists. So I was so impressed because free church people don't read the free church website and these atheists were reading it. Except they weren't because I got an email saying, David, um, I'm really sorry. I'm an atheist. I don't agree with you, but I'm sorry for what they're saying about you. And I wrote him back and said, what do you mean, what mm -hmm. they're saying? 
And he said, oh, your letter, it's on the Dawkins website. And I went and there was about six, 700 replies when I got there. There were 7,000 when I left, but um, a third of them were okay. A third of them were a bit dodgy, but a third were really vitriolic. I mean, just bitter, bitter. And I could not believe it. So I thought, no, you guys are not getting away with this. So I started answering them. And I also, I'd written one letter for the first chapter for um, the Dawkins book. And I then uh, decided I'm going to write a letter for every chapter. Mm. And then Christian Focus Publications phoned me up and said, can we publish these? Mm -hmm. Can you write a book for us? And I said, mm. when do you want it by? And this was the beginning of December. They said, by the end of Christmas. I said, you, you want me to write a book in a, in a month when I've got Christmas and I'm a pastor? And, and, you know, I honestly believe, I'm not claiming it was inspired, but I believe that when Paul says through all his energy, he works through me, I believe God mm. gave me the energy and mm. we got it done. Uh, much to their shock and delight and my shock too, it became a bestseller. I mean, mm. I think it was reprinted four or five times in the first year. Uh, and it was a bestseller in secular bookshops which it was just open letters to Richard Dawkins. For me, it was a device to present the gospel, mm. you know, and that's what I used it for. I wrote it for my friends and young people who were not Christians. And I used Dawkins as the conduit for that. That's, I mean, I wasn't trying to convince him or thinking I could argue him because his argument was largely prejudice. Yeah. So, so what I'm hearing is you, you were taking the ideas he was representing yeah. and giving account of you. Yeah, it, it, I, I tell ideas. you, I remember being in a bookstore because I did what I, in terms of promoting it, I did it in secular bookstores rather than Christian ones. Mm. And I remember being in a secular bookstore and in Edinburgh and sometimes the audience was very mixed. Sometimes it was largely Christian. And this one, it was mainly Christian. And one man stood up and said, don't you think it's a terrible age we live in when Dawkins has this book? And it was so depressing. And I said to him, stop, stop. Mm. I want you to look over to your left. What is the number one book selling book in this store? And he looked and he said, Richard Dawkins, The Go and Delusion. I said, yeah, exactly. A book about God, mm. a book about the Bible, a book asking lots of questions. Now I said, all the wrong answers, but if you can't use this to present the gospel, there's something wrong with you. I said, this is a great opportunity. You will have people at work. You will have people in your family. I said, you may think I can't do much. Okay, mm. then take the Dawkins letters because that's what that's for. And I think lots of people did that. I mean, I've met people who've been converted through it. In fact, I've met more people who've been converted through Richard Dawkins than who've been deconverted, if you like. That's that's fascinating. Isn't it? It's amazing. And so, so what you're describing is that the the tool that you provided in, in your open letters, these personal... Yeah. Uh, Rebuttals? Would you describe them as rebuttals of? Well, yeah, I, I like I like using the language and playing with the concepts that other people use. So, for example, it was it, the, the book was titled "The Dawkins Letters," mm. but underneath the, the title was "Challenging Atheist Myths," and the myths for me were things like religion and science are opposed. The Bible is an immoral book, mm. and and lo the the kind of standard tropes that people have, and so I just thought. One, this is a great opportunity to answer those. And two, it's a great opportunity to point to Christ. Mm. And that's what I did. I mean, um, it was interesting because we put it out to about 30 people, Christians, non-Christians, different cultural backgrounds. And I, I found this quite fascinating. The atheists that we sent it to loved it and thought it was mm. funny. You know, um, and I, I mean, I was quite humorous with some things, but also 
um, I took the mickey out of Dawkins a wee bit. Like he, there's a part in his book where he talks about he, you know, you could exist in a universe with a green moustache somewhere else, you know, and I, I just had so much fun with that. And, but it was funny because some American Christians from the South, they thought, oh, it's a bit impolite right. to disagree and to, to make fun. So you should have been turning out the cheek sort of. Well, well I don't Christian know. I think they thought, if, I think their view was if you're nice to everybody, mm. then they'll want to become Christians. My view was much more Elijah, you know, mm. when, where he's the prophets of Baal. Where's your God? Has he gone to the toilet or something? Is he on holiday? Yeah. You know? yeah. Uh, so I did feel a, a certain amount of um, biblical justification for what I did. So let, let me take you back. You, yeah. You've demonstrated, obviously, through the the success, the, the appeal of the Dawkins letters, that you are a good writer, engaging writer. You've just described that you like playing with ideas and yeah. taking concepts and the language of other people and deconstructing it or seeing it from a different perspective. Yeah. When were you aware that this was the sort of thinking, the sort of of intellectual life that you enjoyed? Was was that back at school or is it something that developed I, later? At school, I, I loved history. Mm. And that's because I had a good history teacher. So, I mean, we're at school here. Yes. And teachers make all the difference. I didn't do science, not because I didn't like science, but because my science teacher was rubbish. My, my, my history teacher was wonderful. And so I, she encouraged me and uh, so I did history. Um, and you were I already think, involved in debates back at I did at do school. debates. I enjoyed that. I think also I, um, I loved reading mm. and I always have done. I mean, I, it's strange. When I was in primary school, I went to a, I was thinking about this the other day, actually. I went to a school when I was like, you know, five, six years old, which was meant to be mega modern and it didn't believe in teaching you to read and write. Hmm. You just go play in the sand if you wanted to. And so I played in the sand. When we moved, because my dad was a farm worker and our house was a tied house and we often moved. And I remember, I think I was about seven or eight years old. I went to a school and I was so embarrassed I couldn't read. Hmm. Within a year, I was reading Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn. Just purely and simply because I was so motivated. I was so humiliated. Um, and I guess I was just a quick learner. Yeah. Um, and ever since then, I've always enjoyed reading. So there was that part of it. I think in terms of ministry, I mean, I went to university and studied history and politics at Edinburgh University. And then when I went in for the ministry, um, I did history, Greek, Hebrew, theology, and so on at the what was then the Free Church College and is now Edinburgh Theological Seminary. And when I went into ministry, it was in a small Highland village. And my view was everybody thinks. Mm. Everybody. Yeah. Did you find that to be true? Yes. Uh, my, my, my view, uh, I, I think if you're human, you think, mm. unless you're brain dead, you know, but everybody thinks. They just think in different ways. Mm. So I always wanted to try and get people to think, um, to push them and to get them to consider things. I, I followed, um, was it Kuiper's maxim that all truth is God's truth? And, mm. and I just thought you could present the gospel anyway. I'd look for what people are interested in. You're interested in soccer? Fine. Let's go there. Mm. Interested in music? Let's go there. Um, interested in culture, let's go there, you know. So so let, let me tell you, yeah. with uh, somebody who likes ideas and, and yeah. appreciates thinking, what you, you mentioned earlier that un, inconveniently to you, you were converted around yeah. 16. What was the thing that convinced you? What brought you to faith? Um, I mean, the simple answer is the Holy Spirit. The the What happened was I w was invited by my aunt and uncle to go to the United States. And they asked me to go, they said, would you like to go to a Christian, no, a, a college? They didn't tell me a Christian college, actually. That, that was bad of them. Mm -hmm. 
And, you know, there's going to be a week of events and, you know, 10,000 students or something. So I went and I was furious because it was a Christian convention. And you were not a Christian at this I stage. was not a Christian. I was against. So I was probably the most obnoxious guest. I would, you know, challenge, argue in the seminars, different things. But there was four Palestinian Arab Christians who I just watched them and I just thought, this is really disturbing me because their life, mm. they one, they really believe this. And two, they're not crazy. And that was... You know, I could be dismissive of hypocrites and everything else. I could not be dismissive of them. So I thought, you know this, I'm going to go home and I'm going to give the Bible another go. Mm. And I was told, you know, start the Gospel of John. So I never do what I'm told. So I started First Kings. <laughs> and I remember reading it in bed at night and I shared a room with my two of my brothers in a, this farm cottage and... I remember I would be reading it under the bedclothes with a torch and I think they thought I was looking at something else. Mm. Um, and not getting anywhere, but I just thought I'll continue doing it. I'll continue doing it. And then that Christmas and New Year, one of my friends who's not a Christian, I phoned up asking about going to a party because we had endless parties around then. And he just said to me, God is good. And my first reaction was, if you've become a Christian, that's not fair because you weren't brought up in a Christian home and I'm not one. And I thought, what, what are you thinking that? You don't want to be a Christian. Anyway, he invited me to what we call a watch night service, midnight on New Year's Eve. And I went and I remember the clock going around to zero, zero, zero. And I remember praying, God, if you're there, you show me and I'll serve you the rest of my life. Just very simple. That was it. Came out, remember the place, remember the night, remember the moon, remember everything about it. Nothing happened. Mm. Not a thing. Two weeks, nothing happened. I get up one Sunday and I said to my kid brother, come on, we're going to church. And he said, no, but he's smaller than me. So I beat him up and he came to church. It was my first successful evangelism. <laughs> I'm not a methodology I'm commending, by the way. Um, and my mother was astonished because we got, we were obviously dressed up then and we cycled to the church and she couldn't believe that her two children who were so against, she was still going to church mm. without us, that we went down to this church. And I'm sitting in this church in the Scottish Highlands with the sea lapping against the walls of it. And I remember they were singing a psalm and I just remember thinking, you complete idiot. Of course God exists. Nothing makes mm. sense if he mm. doesn't exist. And I always say to people, the rest of my life is the second half of that prayer. Mm. You know, I'll serve you the rest of my life. And I just knew it. So I, I mean, if you, people ask me why I believe, I will tell them because it's true. If, if, if they want to describe the process, I will describe what happened to me. Yeah, yeah that's, that's a good distinction yeah. as to, to why you believe. Yeah. Well, I can't rely on my experience because the experience could be false. And any of your listeners could say, oh, yeah, well, maybe you just yeah. had this feeling. This and it encounter. Was, or, or, this or someone else emotional. could be, yeah, someone else could be saying, well, I haven't had that, so I'm not. I'm saying, mm. no, no, I'm a Christian because I believe in Jesus, not because I had that, but I'm telling you how I came to it. Everyone comes differently, I think. How, how do you deal with the, the, the common concept that religion is religion and it doesn't really matter and you believe this version and other people believe other versions of, of faith. What makes you convinced the Christian story is true, the Christian propositions of truth? That brings me to another um, uh, another book that I ended up writing. Um, Christopher Hitchens had a book called God is Not Great. Mm. And I saw some Christian responses to it, which really annoyed me because Hitchens' book isn't about God, it's about religion. Mm. Hardly mentions God at all. And 
I saw a response, which was why Christianity is great. And I thought, oh, you've got this so wrong. You know, it's Jesus, it's Christ. So I was writing a response to that. And I happened to be speaking at a university in Scotland, in Stirling. And I remember, I think he was the president or he was an office bearer in the Atheist Society standing up and saying, all right, you've destroyed my atheism. What do you believe? And I thought, nah, that's a wind up. You, you know, that's not mm. for real. You're setting me a trap. It turned out he was for real. Mm. And I said, and I started giving him, in the back of the Dawkins letters, I'd written 10 reasons why I believe. And I started giving him those. And then I stopped and said, do you know this? Actually, no. I believe because of Jesus. I'm not going to argue for theism. I'm not going to, I think, without Jesus, I've got nothing. That's great. And he said to me, yeah, but who's Jesus? Now, I knew that he knew there was a figure called Jesus. I knew, you know, he probably had the general knowledge. And I thought, I need to be, I wanted to give him something to explain who Jesus was and I couldn't find anything. So I ended up writing a book called Magnificent Obsession, which was an attempt to explain who Jesus is, past, present and future, if you like, mm -hmm. for people under 40s, postmodern Western society. And again, that was fantastic because it became a bestseller. And I think it did because, I mean, I'm not the world's greatest writer, but I'm readable. Mm. And so on what I do, my technique is to make it quite personal but also to put a significant amount of information, but I think more than anything to provide people with um, information that they can go and look at and research and follow up further. And so the answer to your question, that's a long way around of just simply saying Jesus Christ makes the absolute difference. I do think religion is harmful. Yeah. Yet I also would argue as a historian that there hasn't been a single human society which isn't religious. Yeah which to me indicates that every single human being has an appetite for God. It's C.S. Lewis's great argument that, you know, we have an appetite for sex because there is sex. We have an appetite for food because there is food. We have an appetite for God because? There is God, yeah. yeah. And I, I think that argument holds substantial water, Yeah. you know, and I just thought there's a darkness over human beings and what I need to bring them is not a theistic argument or a moralistic argument. I need to bring them Christ. Yeah. And Magnificent Obsession is, of all the books I've written, that's the one that I, for me, that, that I carry it around with me and I give it to people, you know. So, so David, you get converted as a teenager mm -hmm. and you head off, finish school, head to university. What, by what process were you refining your, your ideas, your, your thoughts, your, your position on, on the things that would then become the, the platform or the... The expression yeah. of your your thinking. Number one, uh, I, I read God's word every day. Um, that's sometimes I didn't want to. Mm. Sometimes I didn't. You know, I'm not saying I could, don't think I could sit before you, but I, I can recall when I didn't. So, did you ad adopt that as a discipline? Yes. Yeah, uh, an old fashioned thing. But I mean, I use a calendar called the McShane calendar, which you go through the whole Bible in a year, the New Testament twice, and the Psalms twice. Um, and it's like Spurgeon talks of his blood being bibline. I've never, ever regretted doing that. And mm -hmm. I still do it. To this day, I still do it. Uh, I feel as though it's like if you, when you get up and you don't brush your teeth or you don't, you know, I, I like my food and you don't eat your food. For me, not reading the Bible during the day, there, there's something wrong, mm -hmm. something missing. It's not, and it's not a guilt trip. Mm -hmm. it, you know, at times I would do it just out of sense of duty, but it's not a bad duty to have, is it? Mm -hmm. and, you know, sometimes you'll eat food, you don't feel like it, but you know you've got to, to keep well. Um, but to have an appetite, that's a wonderful thing. So read the Bible, you pray, 
um, be involved in a biblical and lively church, so a church that teaches and practices the Bible. But also, um, I observe the culture all the time. So I, I read a lot. I did history at university, did politics as well, but mainly history. Um, and I think I was, I, I think I, I, I believed what the Bible said about heaven and hell. So I did, I've always wanted to be an evangelist in that sense. Yeah. So, so, so you, you, you uh, spoke a little bit of reading the culture. Yeah. There's a deeper capacity in the things that you, you, you critique the culture. Yeah. Is that something, like, did you have people that you were bouncing ideas around or sharpening your... Well, yeah, I didn't live in a Christian ghetto, so I would, a lot of my friends at university were not Christians. Mm. Um, I, you know, I lived in a non-Christian society. Um, I didn't think that the church was a separate part of that. Mm. I, I thought that, you know, without knowing even what the term meant, I was ad adopting a Christian worldview and applying it to the society that we live in. It's only later on. So, for example, much later on in my life, I came to meet a guy called Tim Keller, mm. And this sounds really, really arrogant, but when I listened to him the first time, I didn't hear anything new in that particular talk. He was talking about culture. It was just what I believed. He just articulated it so much better. Yeah. And I realized that's what God had been doing. And I think that's what God does. You say, how do you get there? When I was at university, I was involved in student politics. As part of that, I did a lot of debating and speaking, standing up in front of people and making speeches. Did that for about three years. And then my political career, my wannabe political career fell through. And that all seemed such a waste of time. I mean, I was, I enjoyed it and I was very involved in that kind of thing. But about 20 years later, I write the Dawkins letters mm. and suddenly I find myself in secular environments, standing up doing exactly the same thing, but not about politics this time, but about Christ mm. and, and answering people's questions and, and I believe that God in those three years was preparing me because I learned to think on my feet mm. very quickly. I mean, what I do in that, I mean, this is not a boast because its I don't think it's that important, but somebody needs, you know, God gives us all different gifts. You can stand me up in front of any audience and I'll take Q&A and even hostility. Mm. And I think God was preparing me for that. The thought had crossed my mind when I first did it. I remember, in fact, I remember distinctly standing up in a bookshop in Dundee hundred people there, 40 to 50 of them non-Christians. The questions firing in were absolutely wonderful. The Christians were buzzing afterwards. I, I went home saying, this is what I'm meant to do. This is the Eric Little thing. You know, when mm. I run, I feel his pleasure. Mm. And I remember praying, Lord, why, why didn't I do this from the beginning? Why have I had all these years of ministry and not done this? And the answer I got, not, not a direct voice, but just the understanding I got was very simple because you would have been an arrogant so-and-so. Mm. You know, you, but 20 years of ministry had... As I say, I'd buried the 18-month-old. I'd, I'd made mistakes. I'd been with a drug addict. I'd seen the elder backslide, you know, um, dealt with suicides. Yeah. You'd done life with So people. they were all real. And so the questions that were coming for me were not, hey, I've read a book. So I'll give you an example of how that happened when I first started ministry. I went to do a Bible study in a small village um, and a woman there, who was the, actually the hostess, asked me, well, what about suffering? And I gave her just what I thought was a brilliant answer. I mean, it was C.S. Lewis, The Problem of Pain. I, I thought I'd nailed it. I was, I was pretty impressed. Um, that's a horrendous thing to say. 
And then she went through to make tea and coffee and the other people there said, do you know who that is? And I said, no, who, who is she? They said, well, this is her house and she's Richard's mum. And Richard was a kid who'd been born healthy and then had an injection and something happened that went wrong and he became severely handicapped. And the BBC had made a programme about him and she, I think she'd given up her job to look after him. She went through a lot of suffering. I mean, he was handicapped from the neck down. And, wow. And I just sat there and I felt, you know, if this was, wasn't was radio, I'd, I'd make a gesture, just very small. Mm. I, I just felt an inch high. I, I felt such a fool. So I got up and I went through to the kitchen and I said to her, look, I am so, so sorry. I had no idea when you asked that question, who you were. And she just looked at me and she didn't pity me or patronize me. She said, that's all right, son, you'll learn. And she was right. She was absolutely right. I mean, you, I, I was severely ill in 2011. I almost died. I was in a coma, et cetera, et cetera. And I was in hospital for, I think, 11 weeks. And the surgeon came to see me when I was going out and he's a Muslim. And he said to me, David, you've been given a great gift. Mm. And I said, what's that? And he said, you deal with the most important things known to human beings. And he says, you've been right to the edge. It's not an experience I would recommend, but he was right. He was absolutely right. Mm. You know, so, you know, it's, it's, it's tough going. So you, you can stand now with the water under the bridge and the yeah. best-selling books behind you and being recognised as one of the, the leading thinkers and speakers about Christian apologetics. At the time when your aspiring political career for, for whatever reason, didn't eventuate. How did, how did that feel? How, were you I was, I, I was crushed because it was because of Christianity. So I had done what I thought was the wise thing. I hadn't emphasized my Christianity. I never spoke about it. Hmm. Um, occasionally I was asked. I was the favorite to be elected, what was called the senior president of Edinburgh University. I was pretty well guaranteed a safe seat in parliament. You know, it, it looked, everything looked great. And then the night before the actual election, I saw the student newspaper, which was the guideline. People within politics and university, which is a couple of hundred people, knew this wasn't true. Everyone else read the student newspaper. It was posted up outside the polling booths. And it said, David Robertson is an extreme Marxist economically and an extreme fascist uh, socially. And I knew I was finished. And no chance of rebuttal. I, I knew, I, I knew, I just, I knew then, and there was a Hastings meeting and I, the, the editor of the newspaper stood up and said, could David Robertson tell us when God told him to stand? And I made a speech about religious discrimination and so on. And even then it was kind of the gay issue as well, which is you're, you're talking there 1981. No, maybe 19, sorry, that wouldn't mean anyone, be 83. And I just remember being absolutely devastated. Mm. I just thought, Lord, I did all of this. I worked so hard for this. And in one night, it's gone. I mean, I knew even when I went to the count, I mean, it's quite funny having all these drunken communists coming up to me and saying, we're really sorry, Dave, that was really unfair. But what was the point of me thinking that was unfair? Mm. And uh, and yet, you know, many, what's the proverb says, many are the plans in a man's heart, but it's mm. the Lord's purpose that prevails. Mm. And God had different plans. And now, I mean, people occasionally still come to me and say, why don't you get into politics? Why don't you, because you'd be really good at this. I say, no, no, God's given me something greater to do from my point of view. And bizarrely, I have more influence because yeah. I have more politicians who read my blogs or, you know, because of the, the very public nature of the ministry. By the way, I don't really think I'm that great a thinker. Oh. And, and, I, and I don't like the term apologist because it 
carries connotations for a lot of people. I like to think that um, what I do is seek to communicate persuasively. We call it persuasive evangelism, you know, who Christ is. And I do think that the Lord has given me an understanding of the culture, mm. perhaps. And I try and connect those two things. Mm. So the the understanding of the culture that you refer about, yeah. are, are you intentional about exposing yourself to culture? Is yes. it something that you seek out? H- how do you go about keeping current, keeping... Well, I'm here in Australia, so I read the Sydney Morning Herald. Good stuff. Um, not because uh, it's a paper that I particularly admire, but it helps me understand how some people think. I'll also read the Australian. Um, I will occasionally watch television, though it does my head in. Uh, films, but most of all, people. Mm. So I used to have something stuck on my wall, and some of your listeners will be just thinking, how could you be that stupid and not know this? But I needed to know it, because in ministry you can become very insular, and mm. all of us can go into our wee comfort zones. And I just had this on my wall. You can't talk to people about Jesus unless you're talking to people. And although, as your listeners will gather, I'm a talker, Mm. it's when I listen that I get much. So I try and listen to the culture. I listen to music. I listen to, I read a lot of books. So I'm always reading at least, I read at least two non-Christian books a month, probably more. And I read a lot of Christian stuff as well. In your favorite area of history or? No, I do. I, I, my, my pattern is very simple. I, I always have six books on the go. Wow. So one is a history. One is what I would call theological or whatever. Another is devotional like the Puritans or the early church fathers. One would probably be a secular novel. One would be a classic and one would be poetry. And you have them stashed in different parts of life, so I've got one in the train. Yeah, I've got, well, I've uh, my Kindle my Kindle at night, so I don't yeah. wake my wife because it's a backlit Kindle. Um, I have my Kindle. I, I, if I'm going on an air flight, I'll often take my Kindle. I have one book that I carry around with me. I have a book in my study and I have a book for my lunch break. Mm. So, you know. They're, they're the so, Yeah, yeah. So I, I you know, I, it, it's, it's intentional yeah. in that way. Occasionally, like I've just read Douglas Murray's uh, latest book, The Madness of Crowds. Well, that, that for me was unputdownable. Mm. So, and, and also Dawkins' latest book for young people, I got that on my Kindle because I knew I wouldn't get it in time and I'd read it within 24 hours so mm. that I could write a response, which I did. We're coming to the end of our time, David. Yeah. Uh, our conversation hopefully is framing something that young people might be able to, to take away and reflect on for themselves. Yeah. If you had some final things that you wanted to share with you know, a, a young person who was imagining their life stretching out before them, wondering what God might have for their future, what would be some things you would encourage them to to think about? Well, I think I would say this. I would say that, you know, none of us can presume that we've got another day. So you do carpe diem, you live for the Mm. moment. That is true. You must live for the moment. But also you don't have to squeeze everything from the future into the moment. God knows you don't know. And what I would suggest is what you're doing right now is you're building foundations. Mm. And if you're building a house and 10 years on, you discover the foundations are rotten, you've got to knock it down and start all over again. You've wasted so many years. The Lord can give back the years the locusts have eaten, as the Bible says. But how much better if you get a solid foundation? Mm. So I would say get the foundation. So, for example, the kind of stuff I'm talking about, God gave me an interest in history. God gave me a love for reading. God, I never saw how all these different things would come together but they did. And who knows what God is doing in your life. So get the basics right. Yeah. You, you got to be into his word, look after yourself, mm. be part of a lively church, 
I, if, if you're not a Christian, you need to come to know the Lord. You know, that's your first and number one priority. Otherwise, you're building your house on sand. So build your house on Christ, your life on Christ. And I would say being in this school as a Christian school, it's a real privilege. Take advantage of it because there'll come a day when you will need everything that you have learned here. And if you haven't learned it, you're going to be, you're going to struggle. So don't presume on the mercy of God in the sense of saying, oh, God will just look after it. Just say, I'm building foundations here. I'm, you know, I look after my body. I look after my soul. I, I'm, I'm doing what I can to grow and to develop. And especially a young person right now, you are going to learn more in the next couple of years than you will learn in 10 years of life later on. You won't have time later on. Yeah. And, and, and also your brain won't be so quick. Yeah. So you, you're talking about holding a, a, a sense of the immediate. Yeah. Enjoy today, but yeah. also keep your eye on the future. Yeah. Don't keep thinking, well, in fi- in a year's time or another year's time, I love the sound of the children. Yeah. <laughs> That's okay. That shows we're in a real school. Um, and, you know, don't keep thinking we're, we're uh, you know, um, when I do this, then I'll do this, then I'll do this. You're living for Christ now. So, you you know, the more I go on, the more I do live each day, but you do also, you know, you have to consider and you have to plan. So because you're living for each day, you're a farmer. You don't say, well, I'm not going to plant my seed. Yeah. Of course you're going to plant your seed because you've got to harvest next year, you yeah. hope. Now, you don't know. There could be a drought. There could be a flood. There could be, you could have a heart attack, but you still plant your seed. Yeah. And I think that's exactly the same with what we're doing in terms of, you know, so someone could say, ah, oh, do you know this? I don't care about my relationships. I'll just have lots and lots of different relationships that are cheap and shoddy. And then later on, I'll settle down. Yeah, but what you sow now, mm. you'll reap later. Mm. So I, I think young people should learn to value themselves enough to not give in to the pressures of the culture mm. and to build upon what Christ has given them now. Mm. And who knows how God will use them in the future, but I, I, I know that he will. Yeah, that's great. David, just in closing, we might remind people that you've written a book that is Ask. Yes, A-S-K, Ask, Seek, Knock. Ask, Seek, Knock. It's available in all good Christian bookstores and through Amazon. Yeah. And if you want to hear a bit more about uh, how David thinks about the culture and how we can engage in it, it'd be well worth your while getting hold of that book. And it's for teenagers, although bizarrely, it's loads of adults are taking it. I've just I discovered this week that quite a lot of parents, I, I know at least several fathers who are reading it with their teenage sons. What a wonderful idea. So that's, it's like, what a great thing. You know, yeah. I was so pleased with that. I, was, I wondered why are adults listening, reading it? Because, and I'll tell you why. It's because it's 700 word answers and mm. prov- provocation, if you like, mm. for people to think from the Bible about key questions. Most people haven't time to read 7,000 word answers. Yeah. So, I mean... It works for adults as well, but it is written for teenagers. Fantastic. David Robinson, thank you for your time and thank you for the work that you continue to do. Yeah. God thank bless. You.